and turn to John chapter 21. John 21. And if you look at this, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 25 of John 21. What, what, what are those verses? The last verses of John. Yes. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, appropriately, Jonathan mentioned that. Um, the last verses of the Gospel of John. This is our last message in our study through the Gospel of John. Actually, number 77. Um, I title all my messages when I'm preaching through a book. I first put it there. I put it like John 1. Alright, John 2. It doesn't mean the chapter, it just happens, because obviously there's more, there's not 77 chapters, right? So this is our 77th message in um, John. We've done a lot of other things if we've gone through John 2, right? Of course, we, we take breaks here and there, but we, we did a whole study on worship after G we studied the, the, the encounter that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus said, you must worship uh, the, the Lord in, in spirit and truth, and we did four weeks on just worship. We did a whole four-week study on the Holy Spirit. After we looked through uh, what Jesus had to teach about the Holy Spirit, we came back and kind of looked at all of Scripture, beginning with the Trinity. Remember that? And then we did the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, and did a whole series on, on, on the Spirit. Uh, so we kind of used John as a jumping point. So there was, we, you think it's 77 message, well, that didn't take that long. Well, it seems like it took longer than it did, right? Because we did some other things in there. But today, Lord willing, we'll finish the Gospel of John. But my hope is we finish the Gospel of John, we won't finish living the Gospel of John. Uh, as we've worked through here, and I've been personally challenged and encouraged and hopefully changed by um, God's message through John in this gospel. Uh, and my prayer is that it's the same for you and that we will continue uh, to live what the Lord has taught us through this. But the title of the message this morning is Characteristics of Those Who Believe. Characteristics of Those Who Believe. So let me lead us in prayer before we dive in here. Lord, uh, thank you again for your word and for the privilege to come under it. Um, and uh, be changed by it. Uh, Lord, I pray for each of us, for myself and for all those gathered here this morning. Lord, as we look at this passage, as we look at these words on the page, that we don't see them as words on the page, but we see them as your words. Lord, we ever need to be reminded that this is not just a book. It is the book is the book that you have revealed yourself to us. You speak to us just as you spoke to Abraham and spoke to Moses and spoke to those people audibly. Lord, when we hear your word, you are speaking as directly to us as you were to them. No difference in authority, Lord. This is your authoritative word. And Lord, I pray that we would treat it as such. Lord, we would come under it. We'd be humbled by it. Lord, it would change us. And Lord, that it would uh, permeate all of us in all of our lives. Help us today as we look at it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of you all have heard um, some of the jokes that start off with, you might be a redneck, if? You ever heard those? And you probably can think of a lot of those. And you look on the internet, you can go on and on and on. So things like, you might be a redneck if your working television, sit, sit, your working television sits on top of your non-working television. You might be a redneck if... You have a complete set of salad bowls, and they all say Cool Whip on the side. <laughs> all right. Well, I found another uh, interesting list, something very similar to you might, you might be a redneck if, is you might be a Texan if. 
Are you all ready for this? You might be a Texan if you see more Texan flags than American flags. You might be a Texan if you think that people who complain about the wind in their states are sissies. All right. Uh, if you don't understand that, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. But <laughs> uh, you might be a redneck if you know someone who ate the 72-ounce steak and got it for free. You might, be a red, you might be a Texan if you attend a formal event in your best clothes, your finest jewelry, and your cowboy boots. You might be a Texan if a tornado warning siren is a signal for you to go out in your yard and look for the funnel. You might be a Texan if you've ever had to switch from heat to AC in the same day. Uh, you might be a Texan if you know that the true value of a parking space is not determined by the distance to the door, but by the availability of shade. I like this one. You might be a Texan if you prefer, prefer Whataburger to McDonald's. All right. You might be a Texan if you're disappointed when a food doesn't come in extra spicy. You might be a Texan if you know from experience that rattlesnake meat tastes like chicken. You might be a Texan if you have both a dog and a brother-in-law named Bud. <laughs> oh, I like this one too. If you, you might be a Texan if a Mercedes-Benz is not a sta status symbol, but a Ford F-350 diesel 4x4 is. You might be a Texan if you've learned how to shoot a gun before you learn to multiply. And, and this last one here, you might be a Texan if, you're, if your pastor wears cowboy boots. Uh, you might not be a Texan, huh? But Jared, here we go. Our associate pastor is wearing his cowboy boots. A true Texan style, right? Well, uh, in another way you could describe that, if you, you might be a Texan if, is, uh, it's a list of characteristics of those who are from Texas, right? That's, that's kind of, now they may not all be true, all right, but that some of them really are. That's what makes them so funny is because some of them are really true. And, uh, uh, and characteristics are generally qualities that are true about something or someone. You want to understand what a characteristic is. Sometimes we use the word attributes. Uh, some may object, obviously, to some of the stereotypical characteristics about Texans or rednecks or some other state. Uh, but those characteristics are, are, are not really that important, are they? Whether we object to them or not. They're, they're not life-changing, whether we wear cowboy boots to church or not, or whether we like Whataburger better than... Now, some of you may disagree with that, better than McDonald's. Um, but they're not life-changing. They're not that important. Well, I would say that there are lists of characteristics that are important. Number one, the characteristics of God, who God is. That's the most important list of characteristics we can have a right understanding of, is who God is. I think another important set of characteristics would be characteristics of those who believe, those who are followers of Jesus Christ. There are characteristics, there are things that characterize those who follow Jesus Christ. And it's not just those people who say they follow Jesus Christ. It's those who follow. And there will be certain characteristics of those who follow Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember in the very first message of John, we learned the purpose of John as we kind of did an overview and looked at John from a, 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 uh, an aerial view. And we've spent some kind of coming down and looking a little more specific. But John shares his purpose in the gospel, uh, in John chapter 20, we'll look at it here in a second, but we've also, we were reminded over and over again, because John never lost his focus, did he? For why he wrote this, why God had him write the gospel of John, and we do find that in John 20, 31. But these things 
have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John never wavers from this purpose, ever. He wants people to believe, and he's unashamedly saying that. I'm writing this for a purpose, so people will believe and have life in his name. Now, throughout his gospel, he showed people He showed his people who believed, and he showed his people who didn't believe. We saw that contrast, right, over and over again. People who really believed and people who didn't believe. Even some people who said they believed, but when it came down to it, they really didn't believe. Jesus pointed that out, and John shows that. He taught us what it means to believe. He taught how and why a person believes. He also showed some characteristics of those who believe throughout this gospel. And in these last few verses of his gospel, 15 through 25 of chapter 21, he will show us some more characteristics of those who believe. So when we look at these characteristics, understand they're not exhaustive. All right, we're not going to look at every characteristic of those who believe. We've seen a lot already. We're going to see some this morning. And I guess the question that we need to ask, all of us need to ask, is do you believe? Do you believe? If that is why John wrote this, to not ask that question and answer that question would be a travesty. It means we've missed the whole point of the book, right? Do you believe? And if you do, then the characteristics that John shows us in this passage will be true of you. That will be true of you. Maybe not perfectly, but they'll be true. There'll be evidence of those in your life. So let's now direct our attention to this passage and allow God's word to encourage us and challenge us and hopefully change us this morning. And I'm going to work through these verses a little bit different than I have been. Oh no, I'm making a change. Some people hate change, right? All of us do it some things, right? But I'm going to change a little bit how I have been working through uh, the text of John. So I, I'm not going to work through it and kind of explain the text and then come back and kind of give us some implications and applications. I'm going to weave it all through today because I don't want us to miss this. And I think the way that the text is presented is the best way to do this. So uh, I, I'm going to actually point out throughout this text five characteristics of those who believe so that we might be encouraged and challenged as follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus, to evaluate our life on the basis of his word and the one that we follow. So let's begin, just be, be reminded of getting to this point in John. I'm not going to remind us of chapter 1 all the way through 21, all right? But to remind us where we've just been, that Jesus has risen from the grave. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to 10 of the disciples, came back, appeared to Thomas. He gave him this great commission. You need to go out and share the, share the gospel uh, uh, throughout the whole world. And then he uses, in the beginning of chapter 21, he uses this fishing experience to teach them to reject the futility of being self-reliant. When they were, because when they were self-reliant, what does it say? They caught nothing. Not to be self-reliant, but instead embrace the fruitfulness of being Savior-reliant. When they were reliant on the Savior, they caught abundantly. They went from nothing to abundance because they were quit relying on self and relied on the Savior. And if they were going to fulfill this amazing mission to take the gospel to the world, they were going to have to rely on the power of Christ in them. Not on their own strength, not on their own wisdom, not on their training, but on Christ and him alone. Now after Jesus' gracious object lesson here that he gives them, John turns our attention. Uh, there are seven disciples at this time together we learned that, that, that are with Jesus at this point as they see him on the shore and they come and they're having breakfast. And, and John now turns our attention away from the group to Jesus and Peter. Just kind of a one-on-one 
encounter that Jesus and Peter have here on this beach. Now before we look at the specifics of this encounter, let me remind us of some of the things that Peter said and did before Jesus' arrest, his trials, and his death. Alright? Notice what Peter said before Jesus is arrested in Matthew 26.33. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Alright? How about Luke 22.33? But he said to him, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. How about this? In John 13.37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Well, what happened? Well, we saw in John 18, right before Jesus was arrested, it was looking like Peter was going to come through with his boast, right? If all fall away, not me, I'm tough. Because there in the garden, he takes his sword out, and he cuts off Malchus, the, the servant of the high priest, he cuts off his ear. I mean, Peter's going to, he's, he's, he's standing up to all the things he said, right? And then even when they take Jesus to the courtyard of Caiaphas, who's going with him? Here comes Peter. He's going. He's not scared. He walks right in that courtyard. Of course, he's kind of give, get in, entered in because John knows somebody in there. He gets in there in, the, in Caiaphas' courtyard, and there's Peter right in the midst of it all. He's not scared, is he? He's going he's to fulfill exactly what he said. Well, it's about that time that things take a turn for the worse. All of a sudden, boastful Peter has a change of heart. There around a charcoal fire, a slave girl confronts Peter and asks him, weren't you one of those, those guys that followed this Jesus man guy? Peter says, I am not. And before the night's over, actually before the very short time is over, Peter would be confronted two more times. Aren't you with Jesus? No. W weren't you with Jesus? Not me. And it even says in one of the Gospels that he cursed. And immediately following that third denial, John wrote this. And immediately a rooster crowed. Jesus had predicted that when he would, uh, after he denied him three times, a rooster would crow. And sure enough, it did. Peter had been so confident in his boast of not denying or falling away from uh, Jesus. So confident. Arrogantly so. And yet he still fell. He still denied Jesus. Well, with that knowledge and that background, let's now look at this encounter Peter and Jesus have that John uses to close this gospel. And I think you'll see this in a whole different light. Remember, we need to get context, not just from the verses, not just the chapter, but the whole book, the whole story gives us context. And I think many people have missed some of the point of this passage because they just look at it so minutely. And we can all be guilty of that, especially those who just like to go verse by verse, right? But verse by verses are set in with other verses, other chapters, and other books, right? And we want to see this, and that's why I gave you that before we look at this. Now let's look at this beginning in verse 15. I'll read down through... Verse 17. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, 
You know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. What's going on here? The reader is, first of all, meant to see some parallels with this really what restoration of Peter to the denial of Christ. In verse 9 of this chapter, if you look by, back there, when they get to shore on the beach, Jesus had built a what? A charcoal fire. And in the background of this, char- and background of this restoration of Peter is a charcoal fire. And remember, I just, we just talked about there when he denied Jesus, the background was a charcoal fire. And people reading this, God, we shouldn't miss that. The denial and the restoration. He meant to see it together. In verses 15 through 17 here, in, uh, um, we see that Peter denies Jesus three. I mean, we see Pete, Jesus asked him, do you love me three times? In the denial, we see that what? Peter denied Jesus three times. We're meant to see that. We're meant to see this parallel. That, that this is meant to take us back to that time, that night, which was just a few days before this that where Peter denied Jesus, where he turned his back after all his boast about how he knew and how he loved Jesus and how he would stand with him no matter what. Well, this three times of restoration going along with the three times in an hour would heighten the grace of Jesus in restoring Peter. I mean, Peter failed miserably, didn't he? I mean, he didn't just fall a little bit. He fell miserably three times. He was given a chance three times. It wasn't just a trip up. He fell flat on his face. And as great as his fall was, Jesus' grace was greater. And I think Jesus wants him to know that here. I think he wants us to know that. That as bad as we fall, that his grace is greater than the greatest sin. He can overcome that and he can restore us. Well, the first time that Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says, do you love me more than these? Now, I believe the context, and I'm going to show you here in just a second, um, uh, throughout this, is referring to the other disciples that were with them around the charcoal fire. Do you love me more than these? Speaking of these other guys that are there. And I, I think that, that, that the context points to that. Just one thing, here in a second, he's going to talk about John. Peter's going to refer to John. On the back side of this conversation he has with Peter. And with, with, with Jesus. Peter's going to refer to John. So I think he's talking about these, these other men. Do you love me more than these? Do, do you love me more than these other disciples? Or you could put it this way. Because of the background of Peter and all that he had boasted about. Jesus was asking. Do you really love me more than these guys do? And surely Peter thought back to his boast. Even if all fall away. Not me. Not me. I'm Peter. And Jesus asked, do you really love me more than these? Are you really who you say you are? Do you re- are you really as great as you think you are, Peter? Jesus wanted to get to Peter's heart. Now remember the end of chapter 2 of John, this many, many, many moons ago, we were in John 2, but at the end of that, it, we've got some people who are saying they believe, they look like they believe, but Je- Jesus would not entrust himself to them because what? He knew the heart of men. So it says, and he, he knew the heart of man. In the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, it says... And there was a man. It's mean a connection there. Sometimes the numbers get all in our way. Because there weren't numbers in the original. And it says, so he knew the heart of man. And there was a man. And he talks about Nicodemus. And Jesus was always after the heart. And here with Peter, he's after the heart. And he gets to Peter's heart. And we're going to see that. 
There's also a play on words here in this passage for the, with the word love in, these, in verses 15 through 17. Now many of you may be familiar with that in, in, in the New Testament there are three different Greek words used for love in the New Testament. There's eros, which we get the word erotic. It has more to do with romantic love. Uh, there's the word phileo, where we get the, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. So it's an affectionate brotherly love. It's, it's a strong love. And then we have the word agape. And in general, that word is meant, meant to be a unconditional love, sacrificial love. It's generally thought of as the highest form of love in Scripture. And in verses 15 through 17, the words phileo and agape are used. Uh, the, those words uh, phileo, let me tell you this before we immediately jump to conclusion, but the words phileo and agape are sometimes used in the New Testament interchangeably. So you could use them, you could use phileo, you could use agape, either one, it would mean the same thing. And, and here's just, a, a, just in, the, in the Gospel of John, you've seen that twice, in John 3.35 it says, the father agapes the son. And in John 5.20 it says, the father phileos the son. Which one is it? And they're meant to see, at that point, you, they can be used interchangeably. He loves the Son. Now, you may say it's, it's a combination of all the love, right, that the Father can have. But sometimes, in other places in the New Testament, they can be used interchangeably. But context dictates what they mean. See, we've got to be careful about word studies. People go do word studies, and they'll say, you know, over here the word means this. And then they'll go and say, and, and, and over here it means this, and over here means this, and over here it means this. And, and, and then they try to put all those meanings into one passage. Don't do that. It's wrong. It's wrong to do that. Just in case you've done that, I have, okay? Don't do that. Because it has a range of meaning, yes, but it can't mean all those things in one passage. We've got to be very careful about that. That's where we begin to get off. So the context will help us say, okay, if this is a range, let's get it down here so we can see what it really means. And, the, and here, this context, um, I think, dictates that there is a differentiation between the word phileo and agape. And there's many other contexts in Scripture that do the same thing. And, and, and I think that they're not used interchangeably here, but they're used to distinguish different types or levels of love. And I, I'm going to prove that to you here as we work down through here. Look at this passage again in, in, in here, beginning in verse 15. The first time Jesus asked Peter, if you want to write in your Bibles, this would be great right now. If you'd like to write them, if not, keep good notes. Do you love me? Jesus uses the word agape. All right? Do you agape me? And Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me with the highest standard of love? And as Peter, being a Jewish man, would may have thought of this verse. You shall love the Lord with God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Do you love me like this? The highest form of love. Well, how does Peter respond? Well, Peter responds there in verse 15. Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. What? He asked him, do you agape me? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo I love you with a brotherly affection. All right. Then in verse 16, Jesus asked Peter again, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter responds again with, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Peter, do you love me with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your, all that you are? Lord, you, you know that I love you like a brother. I love you with great affection, great commitment. Jesus asked Peter a third time in verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This time, Jesus uses the word phileo. 
not agape. He says, Peter, do you phileo me? Notice verse 17, what it says about Peter. Peter was grieved. He was hurt deeply by this question. Why? Well, verse 17 says, because he said to them a third time, do you phileo me? Do you love me? Do you, do you love me like a brother? Peter could not say that he agape Jesus before, but that he had phileo Jesus. He had loved him with great affection like a brother. Now Jesus was asking Peter if he even phileoed me. Do, do you really love me with fond brotherly affection? And this grieved and hurt Peter deeply. It didn't hurt his feelings. Please understand that. And we'll see that. He's not, he didn't, Jesus didn't hurt his feelings. Well, that was kind of rude, Jesus. That's not his response at all here. Notice Peter's response to Jesus this third time. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. The words, Lord, you know all things, are a reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is important for you to see to help us understand this passage. God in chapter 7 of, of, of 2 Samuel, speaking to David, David wants to build the temple. He wants to build God's house. And God says, no, it won't be you, David. It'll be your son. Your son will build my house in honor of me. But through your descendants, there will be a kingdom that lasts forever. Forever. And he's pointing to the Messiah. And after David hears this, he responds. He humbled. He's just humbled by Jesus' promise that through him would be this kingdom that lasts forever that would lead to the Messiah. Look what David says in 2 Samuel 7.20. It says, and again, what more can David... He's even using... He's even speaking of himself. David's talking here. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O God. In other words, you know me. You know I don't deserve this promise. You know I'm a sinner. That's the heart here of David. And Peter, and here in John, says to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know that I'm a sinner. You know I don't agape you. You know I don't love you with all that I am. His heart is broken because God is, Jesus has examined it and exposed it. You know that I'm not what I once said I was. I don't love you more than these. I didn't stay with it. I didn't fight the fight to the end. I quit. I fell. I do not agape you. I do not love you with all that I am. Then, then Peter, after he says, Lord, you know all things, he does say, Lord, you know that I love you. No, Jesus, I do not agape you. And this saddens me. It grieves me that I don't because I really want to. But Lord... Oh, I do phileo you. I do love you with deep affection. But I don't agape you. You see that? That's what's happening here. He's getting to Peter's heart. He's examining his heart. And Peter's all of a sudden grieved. He's grieved because he's seen his heart. And not, that, not that he's embarrassed. That he sees his own heart now. Because he's exposed it. And I am not the man I thought I was. But I want to be. I want to be. It's that kind of grieving. That's how he's hurt. He's hurt and he's humbled by Jesus looking into the deepest recesses of his heart and pointing out that he didn't love him like he claimed. And here's the first characteristic of those who believe. God will hurt and humble you. 
That's the first characteristic here in this passage of those who believe. God will hurt and humble you. When God, by his grace, examines and shows you your heart, and that you're really not all that you thought you were, it'll hurt. It'll grieve you. And it will hurt in the sense that you, you want to love him, but you just don't love him. Jesus came to a man, and a man, or actually a man came to Jesus, and he wanted him to heal his, his child. And he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I don't, he, he was coming, I don't think I believe enough. But help me, help my unbelief. And this kind of hurt will humble you. When you're hurt like this, it will bring humility. The only way you or I can love him, who truly love him, is by his power in us. Being hurt and humbled is a good place to be. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is exactly where he wants us. Hurt and humbled. A friend of mine once told me, Never trust a man who doesn't limp. Never trust a man who doesn't limp. Never trust someone who's never been hurt and humbled. Because God uses people who are hurt and humbled. He doesn't use the proud. He doesn't use Peter before the cross. He uses Peter after the cross, a man who is now hurt and humbled. And oh, does he use Peter. If you've believed on Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God will hurt and humble you. And by hurt and humbling Peter, Jesus was restoring him to be used greatly by him. Amazingly. Jesus told Peter in response to, to Peter's, yes, I love you, tend my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. Tend my sheep. Notice whose lambs and sheep they are. What does it say? It's a little pronoun there. In all of your Bibles, what's it say? My. Whose sheep are they? They're Jesus' sheep. They weren't Peter's sheep. And just as a side note, they're not our sheep either. They're not my sheep. They're not your sheep. God's people are God's people. This isn't my church, and it's not your church. It's His church. We can never forget that. It's his church. Once we forget that, problems start. Well, in my church, you can't put carpet that color. That sounds silly, but it goes there. And you've been to churches like that, right? Well, in my church, we don't do it that way. Well, in my church, we did this. this. We always do it this way. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's his church. We ought to be more concerned about what he thinks about the church than what we think about the church. Because it's his church. It's his people. And he wants us to care about his people, not our people. Now, there's a, a part there that it's ours, but it's his, ultimately. Jesus was saying that if you love me, Peter, then you will care for my people. You will feed and protect them. That's what a shepherd does. They feed and protect. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Brian Walther was teaching in Sunday school this morning from the end of 1 Peter, and it, it, it talks about in 1 Peter 5, 2, to, to the elders, he says, shepherd the flock among you. That's Peter writing this, exhorting the other elders, the other leaders in the church to shepherd the flock among you, to care, to protect, to feed, and to lead. And this is the second characteristic of those who believe. Not just for the leaders in the church, but all. God will use you to shepherd. As a believer, part of your privilege, part of your responsibility is to shepherd other believers, other of Jesus' sheep. Feed and protect them. And how do we do this? Through the Word of God. We are fed by the Word of God. 
Man will not live on bread alone, right? But by every, by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. True life comes from His Word that gives us life. And from the Word that was made flesh, Jesus, who gives us life. So it feeds us. We feed each other through the Word of God. Our conversations are around the Word and the principles of the Word of God. And we protect each other by the Word of God. You know how they, they discover counterfeit bills? They take these people who in, in the treasury and they, actually FBI agents and they teach them how to discover to see a counterfeit bill. Now, you know how many counterfeit bills there are? I don't either. Nobody knows because they're always changing. There's always more. So what they do is they sit them down with the bill. A correct bill. A real bill. And they have them study that bill so greatly so that any time a counterfeit passes across in front of them, whoop, counterfeit. Counterfeit. Because it doesn't match up with the truth. They spend all their time looking at the truth. And when we understand the truth, when we see counterfeit, when we see heresy, things that aren't true about who God is, aren't true about Jesus, aren't true about salvation, heresy. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And we can help each other spot that, right? Amen. And encouraging, protect each other from the, the wolves that Jesus said that would come. And they would come, he said in, 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 in Acts 20, talking to Paul to the Ephesian elders, that they will come and they will be among you. They'll be sitting right there. I don't want to point to anybody in particular because I don't want to point anybody out and think you're a heretic. But they'll be sitting right there. Right in among us. And the only way to know that is if we know the truth and we feed and protect, we shepherd. So God, those who believe Jesus, those who are believers, follow Jesus, God will use you to shepherd all of us. He calls us to shepherd. This brings us to the next part of this encounter that Jesus and Peter have. Look at verses 18 through 20. Truly I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. I just even think here that as, G as Peter saw Jesus on the shore, it talks that he threw on his outer, his outer garment and jumped in all right, to the water to get to shore. They were 100 yards away from shore to get there as quick as he could. And since he girded his, his, his robe up around him, and here Jesus is saying, you used to gird, go wherever you wanted. You jumped out of the boat. You ran here. You ran to the tomb. He girded his, his, his robe up to run to the tomb. You did whatever you wanted. But when you grow old, verse 18, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying about what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. You see, Peter did not love Jesus like he wanted to. But listen to this. One day he would. One day he would love Jesus like he wanted to. He would agape Jesus. He would love him so much that he would lay down his life for Jesus. He would be crucified. He says, you will stretch out your hands. This is what I'm talking about. The means, the way he will be crucified. Now, some people say tradition says that Peter was, when they, they crucified him, they crucified him upside down. There's, just so you know this, there's not enough evidence to support that when you really go back in history. It may or may not happen. The key is not how he was crucified. He was crucified. All right? He did lay down his life. He did agape Jesus in the end. Jesus empowered him to love him like he wanted to. Jesus, by sending this Holy Spirit to indwell Peter, would transform Peter from the inside out so much that he could say when Jesus says, do you agape me? Yes, Lord, you know that I agape you. 
And this is the third characteristic of those who believe. God will transform you. He will transform you just like he did Peter. God gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us a new heart as a promise of the new covenant that can and will agape Jesus. Did you hear that? He gives us a new heart that can and will ultimately agape Jesus. He transforms from the inside out. In verses 18 through 20, we also see that Peter would suffer because of his love for Jesus. And this isn't the way that Peter probably envisioned going out. That's the way he did go out. He would suffer. And not only would he suffer in his death, he would suffer in his life. And here's the fourth characteristic of those who believe. God will allow or bring suffering. He will allow or bring suffering. This is part of being a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. And this is, this is a protection part, right, of shepherding. I'm telling you, the popular thing in Christianity today, if you can call it Christianity, is not this. No, God wants everything to be smooth. He wants you to be happy, healthy, and wise. Tell that to everybody in Africa. They didn't have all that stuff. They were dying of diseases daily. That love Jesus as much as any of us do. And way more than those heretics that are spreading that kind of garbage. That's the kind of protection right there, okay? I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just being honest. This is part of the deal. It's all through the scripture that, that we will suffer. I love this in 1 John 3, 2 Timothy 3, 12. It says this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Does it say may be persecuted? Or might be persecuted? It says will. It's a promise. Now, the first part of that is a difficult part. And I'll never forget a friend of mine in a Bible study about 15 years ago that asked this question as we were studying through 2 Timothy. Then why is it so many, of our, so many of us who claim to be Christians aren't persecuted? You can answer that question. I can too. Maybe because we don't live godly lives. But when we live godly lives and we follow Jesus Christ, it promises we will be persecuted. I think about my favorite, one of my favorite passages of Scripture in James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It doesn't say if. When. It will happen. Difficulty will come. And we learn from when we were studying through James that some people say, God never brings anything negative to your life. Never brings any difficulty to your life. That's all from Satan. That's a lie. We went and we saw and we studied the, 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 throughout the, the, the Old Testament and saw God brought the storm. It doesn't even say he allowed Satan to bring the storm. It says God brought the storm. That's God who does that. Or he allows difficulty. When we look at the book of Job, right? He allowed Satan to come into Job's life. Okay, you can do this, 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 and this. It was difficulty. There was suffering in Job's life. But when we are followers of Jesus Christ, those who believe God will allow or bring suffering. Why? To make us more like Jesus. That's why he's doing it. Not just to be mean. Not at all. In fact, he loves us. That's why he brings difficulty in our lives. And all of us can attest to who have grown at all in our walk with Christ, some of our greatest growth has come through some of the greatest difficulty. Some of the greatest suffering in our life has come, or some of the greatest growth has come through the greatest suffering. So if we believe, God will allow or bring suffering. Now look at verses 20 through 25. The last verses in this wonderful gospel. Peter turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one also who had lead, laid back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Now, we know this is John. Verse 21, so Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. 
Therefore the saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say that to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? This is a disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that this testimony, his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which they were written in detail. I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Wow. Well, up, and, up on hearing his fate, that he was going to die in a painful way, Peter points to John and says, how's this guy? I mean, he's going to get the same thing I am, right? I mean, he's going to die like that too, right? And what's Jesus say? It's none of your business. It's really none of your business how he dies or what happens to him. You follow me. Don't worry about John. It's about you right now, Peter. I have a plan for you. I have a plan for John. You see, Peter died young. John lived to be an old man. Peter preached the gospel in many places which impacted the world. John wrote a gospel that impacted the world. Neither taught or wrote everything there is to know about Jesus, as John points out in verse 25, and I love this verse. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. We were saying the love of God, right? And talked about even we, we could fill the, 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 the ink, the pen, and, and all the parchment in the world wouldn't be enough to talk about the love of God. And that, that's where this, that song, that thought comes from, is this passage. That, that nothing could contain all that Jesus did and who he was. But here in, the, in this interaction with Peter and speaking of John, and there's, different, there's a difference there. Here's a fifth characteristic of those who believe God will deal with you uniquely. God will deal with you uniquely. He had one plan for Peter. He had another plan for John. He has one plan for me, and he has another plan for each one of you. It's not the same. Be who God has uniquely made you to be, and use the gifts that God has uniquely given you in the unique way he's called you to get, use them. Do not try to be someone else. And do not try to make someone else like you. We're all different. Now, now it's, we can take that too far. Here's what I mean. But, you know, the Lord really called that person to share the gospel, not me. <clears throat> Wrong. He's called us all to share the gospel. Now, how we go about that in our relationships is going to be different. It's going to be unique, right? He calls us all to be obedient. There's many things we could talk about there. There's things that are clear, that are very clear. It's not, you can't, it's not one of those things you go, wow, I wonder what that means. That's really a mystery in the scripture. It's not. But how that looks in our life is unique, right? That's what he's talking about. He called John and, and, and Peter both to spread the gospel to the world. Now how they went about do that, doing that would look unique. Because it was unique because Jesus was dealing with them uniquely. You know, there, there's no, no such thing as spiritual children. You know what I'm saying about that? Just because I'm a believer doesn't mean my kids are believers. They don't get on my coattail. They each personally are going to have to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like all of us do. But it's amazing what happens when we uniquely are what God has planned us to be as he deals with us uniquely. Peter calls it later on in his epistle in 1 Peter. When we use our gifts, he calls it the manifold grace of God. The multicolored grace of God. When we use our gifts, how beautiful it is when we come together and use them together for the glory of God. Wow, what a passage. 
some of the characteristics of those who believe. God will hurt and humble you. God will use you to shepherd. God will transform you. God will allow or bring suffering. God will deal with you uniquely. Those are characteristics of those who follow Jesus, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask this question again. Because John wrote this so that, that you may believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you really believe? Now, Scripture tells us that God is holy. He's amazing, awesome, wonderful, gracious, loving, just, righteous God. And he says that I've made you to worship me, to glorify me. And the Scripture says that we've all sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. We don't measure up for what he's made us to do. We've sinned, we've turned from God. And we glorify ourselves. I mean, that looks a lot different for everybody, but we glorify ourselves ultimately. And we walked away. And the wages of that sin, that, that turning from God, it says is death, eternal separation from God forever. And ultimately in a real place called hell or the lake of fire. Forever. Bad news, right? Because none of us have glorified God like he's called us to. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us didn't leave us there, did he? He sent Jesus to die in our place, to take the penalty we deserved, to take the wrath of God and his justice that we deserved. He turned it from us and turned it on his son. He says if we will turn from trusting in ourselves and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us, his righteousness will become ours. His holiness will become ours. It'll be transferred to our account. And God will forgive us and make us as sons and daughters. That's those who believe. Those who turn from trusting in one thing. Quit believing in that. Quit trusting in that. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's called the gospel. Good news. Good news. And my prayer is, if you haven't believed, you will believe. And if you have believed, that God will use you greatly like he promised to use Peter. And you're experiencing that transformation and be used to take the gospel to the nations. The Gospel of John. Amazing. That we live and love like John did by the power of Jesus in us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for this amazing gospel um, that you have given us through your servant, through your servant John. And uh, Lord, I pray that people would see your son in us. For those of us who have believed, it will be evident all over us. And Lord, for those who haven't, Lord, I pray you would open their heart as you did Lydia's, that they might believe the truth of the gospel and be changed, be forgiven, be made new and given a new heart. Lord, now I pray that you would help us as we sing in response and worship you for being the great God of grace that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.